Uh, so this morning we are wrapping up chapter 6 in the Gospel of John. The main idea of chapter 6 is that eternal life comes only to those who eat the bread of life. So that's this big picture in the rest of chapter 6 is that those who eat the bread of life have eternal life. Those who don't do not have eternal life. Chapter 6 contains some strange and challenging concepts as we look at this. So let's first read this section together starting in verse 22. And it's, it's a lot this morning. So we start in verse 22 and all the way to verse 71. John writes this, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal." Then they said to him, what must, we do to be, uh, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, and I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are the Spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's, let's pray together. Father, may we just lean in this morning and be ready to hear from you. Well, my prayer is that we would join the likes of Peter where we would know that there's nowhere else to turn to. You are the only way. You are the bread of life. So, Lord Jesus, help us to believe. Help us to trust you more. Help us to take in these words. Lord, we thank you for doing a work in us even before we were in our mother's womb. We thank you for putting people in our lives who have shared the gospel with us so that we may respond. And Lord, we pray that that your message would go out, that we'd be encouraged this morning, that those who are anxious would be less anxious, those who are worried would be less worried, that we would trust more in you, that we would trust that you are the bread of life. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you were here last week, we, we looked at the beginning of chapter 6, 
um, and we saw this feeding of the 5,000. Five loaves of bread, two fish, multiplies, feeds thousands. It says 5,000, but that was just counting the men. If you count maybe the women and children there, you may have been as many as 10,000. So now Jesus uses this feeding of the 5,000 as a teaching point for the Jews. He, he introduces one of his seven I am statements found in John's gospel. So in John's gospel, Jesus uses seven metaphorical I am statements to show or, or like allude to his deity, that he is God. These I am statements are, are brilliant because they serve as a clear yet subtle way for Jesus to claim that he is God. The, the I am statements are, are a way for Jesus to connect himself back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when God, for the first time in all the Bible, he reveals his name to humanity. He doesn't do that in the garden. He does it in Exodus with Moses, and he says, I am who I am. So that's the first time that God gives himself a name. And so here Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This I am is a play on words referring back to the God's title, I am who I am. So he says, I am the bread of life. He also says, I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the true vine. So those statements he's making, he's saying something even more deeper than just the simplicity of that statement. He is the true vine. Life is found in him, but it's something even more deeper than that. He's linking himself. He's connecting himself to God, the one who freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. I am who I am. So this language of I am the bread of life, it dominates the rest of this chapter. Jesus uses this metaphor to set up not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles need to be satisfied. So what satisfies the soul of man? Why are some people that you see, they're just so content, while others seem to always be looking for something to fill that emptiness deep inside them? You know what I mean? They're just always searching, going from one thing to another. It could be a relationship. There's always in a relationship thinking this one's going to be different than the last one. It could be some thing, could be a drug. It could be a material, just always just unsatisfied. Well, I think Jesus gives us the answer to that question of what satisfies the soul of man. Our passage picks up in verse 22, where Jesus just walked on water. He scared his disciples when they saw him walking on water. Then he got in the boat. They were all comforted then. And then they were immediately on the shore. You know, we didn't even go over that last week, and none of you even asked me about that. I thought for sure one of you would say, what do you mean that Jesus, they just appeared on the shore? I don't know. That's what it just says. Uh, That's amazing. So verse 22, it says, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So this is referring to the feeding of the 5,000. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats 
and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They wanted to see more. They didn't want the show to be over. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has said his seal. So this takes place the very next day from the feeding of the 5,000. And then notice that Jesus doesn't answer their question. Did you catch that? The question asked to Jesus from the crowd was, Rabbi, when did you come here? So a typical answer would contain some measurement of time. That's what you would think, right? Something like, well, you know, about an hour ago, uh, this morning, last night. But Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. See, Jesus, and you see this all throughout John's gospel, he gets right to the heart of their question. He often doesn't answer what they ask. He answers what they should be asking. They didn't seek after Jesus because they wanted to glorify him or make much of him. They just saw an amazing miracle. And you think they'd want to come after him to make much of him, but yet they sought after him in pursuit of some material satisfaction. You ate your fill of the loaves. This rebuke is then followed up with a command in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him, this Son of Man figure, God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus is saying that the bread we crave never lasts long enough. Right? We here in a little bit, some of you are going to be looking at your watch. I don't, you know, some of you still have these kind of watch. Most of you are going to be pulling out your phone. You're going to do it slyly. You're going to like look down at your Bible and just press the button. See, okay, when's he wrapping up? And you're going to be thinking about lunch. And usually when I think about lunch after church, you, know, you kind of go out maybe. My favorite bread, you guys know this, is Texas Roadhouse. And you just smell the bread. You smell it, the honey butter. But then after you eat that, you're satisfied. You're like, oh, I can't get any better than this. A few hours later, you're like, man, I wish I'd have brought some home. Wish I'd asked for some more bread. It just doesn't last. All the physical things we look to, and this could be even for meaning, eventually fade. You, you see this all the time with kids at Christmas time, right? You know, they, they beg for some toy. You know, please, please, please. Like, I just need this. Please. If I just had this one toy, then I'll never, ever, ever, ever ask for another toy ever, ever, ever again. Right? Christmas morning arrives. The child unwraps that present. And there's just pure joy on their face. There it is. They're just so excited. You know, they, they just can't put it down. They're obsessed with it. Maybe even take it to bed with them. That happens for about two weeks, if you're lucky, right? Then that longing in their heart to be satisfied becomes hungry again. But this is not just something that kids deal with, is it? You know, I'm guilty of this as well. You know, I think there's some new gadget that will bring ultimate comfort, sacrifice, uh, uh, satisfaction to my life. 
convenience, like if I just had this new gadget, like this new phone or new tool, then my life would be so much better. I just have to have it, then I get it. Then a few weeks later, I just really need that thing. Jesus says, that food will perish. It will never satisfy you. It gets old. It will not sustain you. But the food that endures, the food that lasts, the food that leads to eternal life, the Son of Man freely gives it to you. Now, why does Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man? Well, this is a title. The Son of Man is a reference from Daniel chapter 7. So Daniel chapter 7, just write that down. It's going to be on the screen. Verse 13, Daniel tells about a vision. Now, listen to this. and Think of John 6, what we just read, and then listen to Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, here's someone who was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. All right, so this is someone who's powerful. This is a ruler king. We know he's a king because he has a kingdom. And his kingdom is one that will not pass away. It shall not be destroyed. You could even say it's, it's eternal. So Jesus says in John 6, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So Daniel 6, now all of these Jews would have understood Son of Man, Daniel 6. They would have known exactly that this Son of Man is one who is going to be this king of this kingdom. People will serve him. And he's got this kingdom that will never end. It's everlasting. It's eternal. And so now Jesus is saying, this food that I give you, it endures to eternal life. So from the context, chapter 6, Jesus is not making a reference about the Son of Man. But here he's going third person and calling himself the Son of Man. You can tell this, by the way, the Jews, uh, they, they question. Um, they have some kind of grasp of what he's saying. Look at verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? See, it seems like the Jews were connecting Jesus' point about the Son of Man, and they did not want to miss out on this eternal kingdom. So Jesus answers them in the next verse. This is the work of God. Okay, you ready? He's going to give you something profound. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Could it really be that simple? I mean, the quest for eternal life 
is found by believing in Jesus, the Son of Man. I mean, surely the greatest reward in all of human history, eternal life, to live forever. I mean, that's what we're all trying to do, right? We're all trying to, you know, take medicine, we go to the doctor, we're doing all these things to live longer, live forever. Here comes this man, he's saying, I have a way where you can live forever. Surely the greatest reward in all of human history must be the result of something harder than what he just presented. You know, Olivia and I tell our kids all the time, anything great in life, you have to work hard to achieve. You know, no one's just going to hand you anything. You got to work hard and get it. Here comes Jesus saying eternal life. Just believe in me. It's like it's too good to be true, which I think it seems like the Jews were thinking the same thing. Look at verse 30. They said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So you can see, like, they're already doubting. Like, how can we trust that this is the way to believe in you? Jesus said to them, verse 32, what in the world are you talking about? What sign do I do that you may believe me? How about the thing I did yesterday where I multiplied two fish and five loaves of bread and fed 10,000 people? I don't know. What about that? That's not what he said, is it? That's what I thought he should say. (laughs) It's what many of us would have thought that he should say, and some of you who don't have filters would have said to these people. What do you mean, what sign do I do? (laughs) What Jesus actually said was, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. I love, John is so skilled in his writing and how he connects things together. Like, the progression of this dialogue is strangely similar to Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. Do you remember in John 4, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Here in John 6, the Jews say, sir, give us this bread always. There's there's a play here. We see the woman responding in a proper way. We'll see as we keep reading how the Jews do. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I will make note here that he says he's the bread of life. You shall never hunger. That makes sense. But then he also says you will never thirst. Any of you ever been thirsty and thought, man, I just need some bread? So as you read this, know that he's using this as a metaphor. He's not literally talking about eating bread will you know, bring, satisfy your hunger. This is, this is 
him just using a metaphor. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. See, I, there are many reasons why I know that I'm not God. Here is one. I lose things all the time. Jesus says, whatever the Father gives me, I'm not going to lose. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. These are some pretty bold statements. Jesus is claiming that he knows what the secret or hidden will of God is. And the Jews are hearing this, and it greatly bothered the Jews. They were bothered by these statements. We see this in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Last week, we we looked at how the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, they they connected Jesus to Moses. You remember that? There's this connection. Jesus was showing how he's the new and greater Moses. This section here is actually connecting the Jews who are following Jesus to the Jews who are following Moses. Don't miss this. Both groups of Israelites are grumbling over the bread that that the Father had sent them. Did you catch that? You know, that's what the Jews in the Old Testament did. God provided them manna every day. Now, how incredible is that? Every morning you wake up, there's just food for you. It's ready. Whenever you're ready, here it is. Come get it. It was fresh every morning. And they grumbled. They grumbled. Neither the manna nor the man were good enough for them. So they grumbled. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? So Jesus answered them in verse verse 43. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from god he has seen the father truly truly i say to you whoever believes has eternal life i am the bread of life your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die i am the living bread that came down from heaven if anyone eats of this bread he will live forever And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So much like the Samaritan woman, these Jews, they remain unable to understand Jesus' language symbolically points to a spiritual reality, not a physical requirement. Remember that she was like, how are you even going to get the water? You don't even have, you know, you don't have anything to draw it out from the well. And she completely missed it. It went over her head. Same here. To eat simply means to believe. That's what it means. Jesus essentially says, 
All the other eating you do still leads to your death. Your fathers ate the, man, they, they ate the manna and they died. But Jesus is offering a different type of bread, a bread that, in which you eat and you will never die. It's pretty, pretty fascinating. It's, it sounds like the newest quest for Indiana Jones, right? The quest, the search for the bread of life. If you eat of it, you'll have eternal life. The Jews, are, they're a bit confused. They're still thinking too literally while Jesus is speaking metaphorically. In verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Wait, what? This sounds so strange, right? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So, you know, setting where he's teaching, people are hearing this, and they're like, what in the world is this man talking about? He's crazy. I mean, put yourself in the original audience. What are some of the thoughts going through your mind as he's saying this? Maybe you're confused. Maybe some of you are really grossed out. Maybe even right now. We see in verse 60 how his own disciples responded. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Yes, amen. This is a hard saying. Eat your flesh and drink your blood. Is Jesus advocating some form of cannibalism? Absolutely not. Jesus is simply carrying out the same bread of life metaphor from earlier. Eating his flesh means to believe or internalize, to swallow the truth about who he is. His point is you can't eat something halfway. Okay, To eat it means you have to swallow it. You either eat it or you don't. I think this is what Jesus is trying to communicate to his audience. You can put something in your mouth and appear to eat it, much like a kid fake chewing on some broccoli. But fake chewing and pretend swallowing is not actual eating. Sadly, this describes far too many people in the church, far too many people in church leadership today. It's all a show. To also, Jesus, he's not establishing the Catholic teaching of transubstantiation. So our neighbors over here, Lady of Fatima, would disagree with my interpretation on this passage. That's fine. I would disagree with theirs. The Catholic teaching states of transubstantiation that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. So Catholics believe John 6 teaches that the Eucharist, you know, the Lord's Supper, something happens. So in other words, Roman Catholic Church teaches that once an ordained priest blesses the bread of the Lord's Supper, it is transformed into the actual flesh of Christ, though it retains 
the appearance, odor, and taste of bread. It's convenient. And when he blesses the wine, it is transformed into the actual blood of Christ, though it also retains the appearance, odor, taste of wine. I would say Catholics are guilty of the same thing the Jews were guilty of here. They were taking Jesus at his literal words when Jesus was clearly, from the context, speaking metaphorically. Verse 61, Jesus confronts the grumbling from his disciples. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So we see some foreshadowing here that we know he's going to ultimately be betrayed by Judas. This is why you don't really meet anybody named Judas. Jesus knew that some people were just pretending to chew their broccoli. They weren't really eating. They weren't willing to eat or digest the words of Jesus. And Jesus says he knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. See, this is a truth that we need to understand this morning. You can fool a lot of people, but you cannot fool Jesus. You can trick me, you can trick your family, but Jesus sees all and knows all. He knows what's in the heart of man. Now, the language that Jesus uses in this section has been a point of division among the church. Make no mistake about it. Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. If you couple that with the truths of the verse um, found, like verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Mix that in with verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You mix those in, you start stirring the pot, you begin to piece together what's called the doctrine known as election. So there's some of you in this room who would disagree with the idea of election being biblical. I think it would be more wise for you to say that you disagree with a certain view of election. But it's not wise to just simply deny that election is in the Bible. The word is used over and over. And the truth of God's sovereign election is present in numerous passages that don't even use the word election. Like, for example, 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 10 simply says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. 
So the word election is right there in this passage. You don't sound like you're being fair to the text when you say that election is not in the Bible. You may understand it differently than someone else, but please avoid saying that the doctrine of election is unbiblical. It's, it's right there. Now, there are others of you who love the doctrine of election, and you really downplay man's responsibility. For you, I want you to see the tension in this text. This tension is found all throughout the Bible. Uh, usually wherever you find a strong verse on election, just keep reading somewhere close to it, you will find a verse on man's responsibility. Like here in chapter 6. We have a verse like 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And so some of you are like, yes, yeah, see, yeah. <laughs> Two verses later, Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Do you want? This sure sounds like Jesus is giving his disciples a choice. But I know the Calvinists would say, it is a choice, but it seems like Peter knew that he really had no choice. Lord, to whom shall we go? This tension is everywhere. Romans 9. You know, it's the go-to passage for Calvinists. It's right there. I mean, it's, if you're studying election, you have to have Romans 9 in your repertoire. The very next chapter, Romans 10, it's like one of the greatest passages ever about evangelism. Neither, either Paul stopped at chapter 9, took a year off and forgot what he had written, picked up in chapter 10, maybe he had some kind of encounter where he stopped believing all that, you know, he wouldn't have said Calvinism because Paulism, I guess. But why are they side by side? I always found it interesting. Romans 9 and Romans 10, side by side. I don't think he made a mistake. See, for me, the doctrine of election is easier to embrace when you understand your own slavery to sin. I was reading this week, and I came across a story from Charles Spurgeon. He's preaching about God's sovereignty from Romans 9, because it's all in Romans 9. Explaining verse 13, he says, I, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. That's Romans 9. Lady came up to him and said, I don't understand how God could say he hated Esau. Spurgeon responded, ma'am. I find it more difficult to understand how God could love Jacob. See, the real mystery of election is not that some are chosen, but that God would choose anyone at all. See, some of you think that we have no choice, and some of you think we have complete ultimate freedom in our choice, and I drive some of you crazy because I will happily and peacefully sit somewhere in the tension while these two camps, you're defending them. We need to understand that divine sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. So let me close this morning with another passage that demonstrates this tension. Matthew 11, Jesus says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So there's 
There's a group of you who are like, yeah, yeah, that's right. All things have been handed over. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then the very next word in the very next verse is come. So here's your invitation this morning. This is what Jesus is telling you. Listen to his invitation. Come to me. Cephas describes you. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Any of you exhausted? You tired of chasing after things that never satisfy you? Come to Jesus. It's an invitation. He's saying, come. If you feel like this is you, then he is inviting you to respond. D.L. Moody would use this passage from Matthew 11 as an illustration on this idea of sovereignty and evangelism. He, he would say, when, when you are saved, it's as though you walk through a door with a sign over it. And the sign would read, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Then you walk through the door, and when you look back over it, there's, you see another, uh, another sign on this side of the door that reads, before the creation of the world, I knew you. See, the doctrine of election is a mystery from our perspective. I'm not going to pretend that I fully understand it, but I praise God for it. His election is what sustains us to the very end. I, I was listening um, to a panel years ago on evangelism and sovereignty, and uh, the moderator said, he said, I find it fascinating how it seems like there are more elect around the churches that take evangelism seriously. See, if, if you are struggling with this tension between the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility, I, I, I want you just to study the words of God, see how they're both there. Um, there's a good book that I would recommend to you, um, J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's, you know, it's not very big. It's not overwhelming. Uh, it's a great book. recommend that to you. Maybe you're listening to all this today, and, and the question maybe going through some of your minds is this. How do I know if, if I'm a part of the elect? How do I know if I've even been chosen? My answer to you would be, all those whom the Father has given to Jesus have turned from their sin and believed in him. Is that you this morning? Have you turned from your sin and believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will, not might, but I will raise him up on the last day. Who will be raised on the last day? This passage gives us two descriptions. The first description is the elect. The second is those who believe in the Son of, of God. Jesus wants us to believe in him, to receive eternal life. And for that to happen, the Father must draw us to him. You may be here this morning because God has been drawing you in. He wants you to repent, confess him as Lord and Savior. Maybe you're here this morning, you realize that you're still hungry. 
The things you've been eating continue to leave you unsatisfied. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Come to Jesus this morning. Stop pretending like you're eating on Christ. Fully embrace him today. Let's pray as the band comes back up. Lord Jesus, I pray that your word has now fallen on hardened hearts today. I pray that your people would hear your truth and respond, that they would repent, that they would trust in you, they would confess their sin. I pray that they would look at all their options like Peter and say, where else am I going to go? You are the only way. You're the only thing that's ever going to satisfy my longings. Lord, help us to be content in you and you alone. Lord, we thank you for seeking after us while we were slaves in our sin. When everything that we wanted to do, we wanted to choose sin. You freed us from that captivity. Lord, help us to be obedient to you now. Lord, help us this week to live on mission. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.